we don't just like send swimsuit ads into the wild, right? Like we use Facebook to target uh, women, first of all, women, because that's all the product we sell, who are likely to buy a swimsuit. And that is what has kept our customer acquisition costs low. It's what has enabled us to scale as a good business. Likely to buy a swimsuit. That's not simple. That's probably what? Thousands of data points that Facebook's, right? right, I mean, that's why I love Facebook. On one hand, Facebook existence is very, very good for smaller companies like you. Yes. And I think as a consumer, the smaller companies are amazing. At the same time, the more of these little companies that sprout up, Facebook's monopoly gets bigger. This whole push-pull of like supporting the little guy, but also supporting the giant, you know. It's wild. Could you imagine more extreme dynamic of this? You have, on, on the one hand, this is literally, you know, this is literally the most efficient system ever created to extend, you know, small loans and working capital to mom and pop businesses, whether they're digital or offline or, or both. Um, and so it, it's great. And, you, you know, you literally couldn't, re- you know, replicate it. On the other hand, you just have these behemoths that have access to, you know, negative cost of capital money that are allowed to just, you know, f- you know, uh, shove it down everyone's throat all day. Welcome. This is the first of a 12-part limited series on Yang Speaks. My name is Zach Grauman. I was Andrew's campaign manager on the presidential campaign in 2020 and now co-host of this podcast with Andrew. And what we're doing now over the next 12 weeks, and this is day one of this, but every Thursday we're going to dive into the future of a topic. And the title of the series is The Future Of. And today's topic is called The Future of Buying. Now you may be thinking, buying, like what does that have to do with me? And I've played this episode with a few pe- for a few people already. And the feedback, I was like, all right, buying, I guess I'm interested in that, I'm not sure. Do I care about this? I guess I do buy some stuff. And then by the end of this, they're like, whoa, that was fascinating. I just learned a crap ton about where this whole world is going. And that is kind of the goal of this series. I wanna talk about stuff that we know are interesting. Maybe it's kind of similar to automation, the way we're we're like, I know that's a thing. But then once you dive in, you're like, oh my gosh, this touches my life in so many ways. So I wanna do three things in this episode, folks. One, I wanted to dive into the world of e-commerce today, like how we buy and sell transactions and how the internet has completely changed that, both on the business side and how we hit it as customers. Two, I wanna talk about where it's going. I wanna talk about what the cutting edge of this looks like um, for years to come. And then lastly, in true Andrew Yang fashion, I want to talk about our humanity, how this actually impacts people and humans and families. So I brought on two amazing guests. The first guest is a guy named Jesse Horwitz. And Jesse is a co-founder and CEO of a company called Hubble Contacts and has started a bunch of e-commerce sites. You have likely bought or bought one of Jesse's products at some point or seen his Facebook ads. He is a digital advertising and digital e-commerce master. Um, And the other guest is this incredible entrepreneur, Melanie Travis, who's the founder and CEO of a company called Andy, 
which is a women's swimwear company, and they sell only online. And it's amazing to see how different that type of business is than businesses started maybe a decade ago or even more recently. This conversation is dynamic. It's exciting. We dive into a topic. And more importantly, I think on a personal level, one of the things I want to provide to you as you listen to this is the ability to learn something. Because I think we've kind of gone away from that a bit. And I think it's really core to what Andrew Yang stood for. So when I listened to Andrew Yang, particularly when I first met him, I was just always learning. And he just knew so much about a specific, like how the economy was working and what was happening in the fourth industrial revolution. And so what we wanted to do on this limited series is find people who are smart on certain topics, dive in and understand what is going on, how this is going to touch our lives, and ideally go on this learning journey <laughs> together. But like, let's go and dive in and actually learn something. If you're gonna get on the podcast, you're gonna listen to one, put it in your ears, maybe come out a better, smarter person. And so I've, I learned a ton from this conversation in particular. Jesse and Melanie are, they're incredible. They're just fascinating humans and they're easy to listen to and they know a lot. Um, so I'm, I'm excited, I'm working hard on this. You're going to love it. So sit back and buckle up. We're about to dive into the future of buying here on Yank Speaks. Jesse and Melanie, welcome to the future of on Yank Speaks. Thank you for being here. Thanks. Excited to be here. So Melanie, let's let's start with you. Maybe tell us a little bit about, about Andy, your company, how you guys work, and, and, and frankly, how you got into this, because I think entrepreneur story is always fascinating to me. My background, real quick, is really in building consumer internet companies. Um, I started my career at a company called Foursquare, and then I went to Kickstarter, a crowdfunding platform. Um, and after Kickstarter, I worked at Bark, uh, best known for Bark Box, a monthly uh, box of toys and treats for dogs. Um, so, so really have spent my whole career in venture-backed um, consumer internet brands that are all about building communities online, uh, some e-com, others, you know, checking into different restaurants. Um, but, but so that's what my background, all in the New York City area. Um, and I started Andy because, um, first of all, I, you know, really got to see sort of how it's done and I got the itch to do it myself. Uh, so, so definitely wanting to follow a, a path that I found to be really exciting and exhilarating. Um, and then I landed on swim just because that's a personal passion point for me and, and, and a sort of Pro, a consumer problem that I and many women in my life have have dealt with. I mean, shopping for a swimsuit as a woman is hard. Um, yeah. it, frankly, it sucks. I hope I can say that word. You can um, say, yeah, you, uh, yeah. <laughs> welcome to Yank Speaks, but you kind of don't have a filter. You're fine. <laughs> um, I just wanted to solve swimwear shopping is really what it yeah. came down to. And I felt that I could figure out how to do that. Um, and here we are, you know, three and a half, actually almost four years later. Um, and we're well on our way to doing that. And we've built quite a quite a company on, on the path to that. You're all online? We're all online. We only sell on andyswim.com. No brick and mortar, no affiliate, no wholesale, just uh, just our own site. So I'm excited you're here because that I think is very telling of what is to come or what can be. Jesse, you've you've sold a lot of different things. I think one of the things we've talked about, you've also sold adult diapers online. You've sold, um, <laughs> which I just wanted to say, um, but like, I, you can sell any of this stuff. So tell us a little bit about you, how you got into this. I was a law school dropout. I was, I went from, I uh, interned at Bridgewater after my 1L year at law school, ended up on the investment team for Columbia University's endowment for a few years. And while I was at Columbia, kicked the tires with some friends on a, a few different ideas. And I had a friend from Bridgewater who was over at Harry's, which is a shave subscription in the city. 
Um, and we started doing work um, on contact lenses, you know, 2015 or so. And it was the great, um, it was the great box subscription boom of mm -hmm. you know, November 2015 to June 2016. Um, and, <laughs> it, it, and we were, you know, we were just part, you know, part part of that illustrious cohort. Um, so so we we started selling. Um, we raised money in May. Um, Left left the endowments launched in November, um, and yeah, since then have got in live with all sorts of stuff on the e-commerce side. So adult diapers, which somebody else owns now, sadly, because it's a good time for adult diapers at home. Um, strollers and COVID, yeah. Um, wrote a book called "Selling Naked" about selling stuff, so sell that too. Um, and yeah, uh, you know, and uh, all sorts of uh, 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 random stuff. I want to get into the meat of this, so. In the past, like let's call it less than 10 years ago, if you wanted to start a business, you want to say particularly one that's selling a product, you needed to design the product and then frankly, buy it yourself, store it, find some sort of inventory management, usually find a physical location to sell it. And then in order to get people to straight up purchase it and open their wallet, you had to do some form of billboard or word of mouth advertising. Um, and that model I just talked about is completely flipped on its head. It's gone. Um, I mean, it's, people can still do it, and you do like some, but like those are the exceptions that I think prove the rule. Walk me through how e-commerce, from a product standpoint, works today. And Andy, maybe the best example, like how where the product is, how it's sold, like how that whole situation is flipped on its head. Hearing you describe that, I think where I went to, where my head went was. There are parts of that that continue today, but it's it's basically like dramatically modernizing how that's done. So for, for how Andy does it, um, I mean, so, some of what we do is quite traditional. We take what has worked traditionally for a product business and then just mm -hmm. like layer on all the modern ways to make it actually work today. So okay. we do design our swimwear, for example. That hasn't changed. We design the silhouettes that we want. Um, obviously, given that we're an e-com company, uh, we are very close with our customer. We don't sell through a middleman, so we're always talking to our customer. So all the designs come from a customer. That might be a way that we're innovating on the, uh, the, the design of the product. In the past, I think historically, companies hire a designer who sits on a pedestal right. and says, this is what the trend will be, and then they make the thing. How do you get the impact or the feedback from the customers? Like, or is it just through Facebook and Yelp or whatever? like review sites you have or how do you do it? A bunch of ways. We send surveys. We say, we're thinking of these silhouettes. What's your favorite? Um, we have in-house customer support that emails, texts, chats, talks on the phone to our customer and says, what would you like to see? Um, we run ads on Facebook. Tell us what you want. Um, so we ask. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's pretty, yeah, and pretty there's simple. a lot of different tools you can ask now and, and you get that back. Quickly. Exactly. We get it back really quickly and we use Slack and, you know, for internal communication and we have a Slack yeah. um, channel that's just, you know, what, what customers are looking for in product. And we just put it all there and then our product team will flip through it and say, like, these are the things that, that we should make given customer demand. Um, so it really comes from the customer. We design the stuff. Um, and then, you know, we manufacture all over the world. Um, and we do, I mean, we hold, we, we hold inventory. So that's another piece where your first model is, is what we're doing today. Um, we work with 3PLs, which is uh, basically a warehouse. The product goes to the warehouse. We have one on the West Coast, one on the East Coast. One thing that does exist today is, you know, all sorts of different inventory financing solutions. So it makes it much more accessible for anyone. You anyone listening to literally go do this themselves with inventory financing. And when you say that, like, that means some, instead of me buying all that product myself, someone would 
only like help me pay that back as the orders come in based on a percentage of what my cut is? Like, how does that work? Yeah, well, there's there's really a, a lot of different ways it can work. Um, so some of them, they'll just fund your inventory up front. They'll literally write you a check to cover whatever you need to buy. Um, but then, you know, they obviously are going to make money on that and it, they de-risk it by, I guess, owning a piece of your inventory. To your original point about how things have changed so much, a lot of these manufacturers are really beholden to the traditional wholesale model and they want a foot in e-com. They want to be part of the sort of e-com thing that's happening. And so they're willing to make pretty interesting deals with an e-com company in exchange for equity. Um, and that happens to be the model that I used. And so uh, the way that I was able to do this is I said, you know, I want to place these really big orders. I don't have the cash to pay for the order now. Uh, give me something, call it like net 90 day terms, um, which is, you know, when the swimsuits hit the warehouse, I have 90 days until I have to actually pay the manufacturer for those swimsuits. And so yeah. that is what allows a young brand to really grow because you don't have to pay for the inventory until you've sold it. Um, mm -hmm. So that's another way that I think, and then that's a model that I know that um, Jesse's also into and it, it's just, it's a, yeah. it's a great way of growing an e-com um, brand. Some businesses are truly coming up with new product categories, but, but, but by and large, these are, you know, existing product categories, or even something like uh, weighted blankets, which is a popular e-commerce category, um, maybe not totally original to e-commerce, but, you know, but definitely was popularized through Instagram, um, but, you know, still just blanket manufacturing. And so, like, I, I think if you think about this whole universe, um, there, you know, there's, there's this idea that, like, we should be building, you know, building everything from scratch, but really a lot of this is taking a lot of infrastructure that already exists, whether that's existing manufacturers, or you've seen a lot of this during COVID, um, existing retailers, also independent retailers, you know, the Nikes of the world were way ahead on this, but even independent retailers setting up an e-commerce presence. Um, but, but, you know, everybody trying to figure out how to get this direct distribution channel. So, you know, so what was sort of the venture version of this story pitched maybe five or six years ago, uh, that, you know, we were going to build the whole universe from scratch just to distribute it through e-commerce and then create sort of owned operated retail for those e-commerce brands. And that was going to be the omni-channel solution for all this, um, you know, I think has fallen back to a much more logical place, which is lots of stores that work already, lots of manufacturers that work already. Um, how, you know, how do we line up their needs, you know, with this new marketing distribution channel? The exact product specs may be different, but at the end of the day, that's the infrastructure that, that's going to deliver those product specs at the best cost and the best value for the consumer, which is, you know, quality adjusted consumers want value. Um, and, and it's kind of hard to start from scratch and, and arrive at that place. So there are certain businesses that have existed, let's call it weighted blankets, right? Where there already mm -hmm. are a bunch of people making them. There's already a bunch of distributors that are probably mainly brick and mortar, maybe some websites where you, you can buy a weighted blanket at Target or maybe CVS or wherever it is. And you've got, let's call it disruptors like yourselves that are like, hey, Weighted blankets, like they're actually pretty customizable or like you can have a million different shapes and sizes and delivery times. And if I can hyper target who can buy them and then buy them and make them available in real time and only order exactly what people want to who wants it and where they are, there's an opportunity to have a better customer experience and make more money and have a, like a smoother operation. And you're saying every product's different. And ideally, if you're building into one that already is a relative market, it works better. Yeah, I mean, to use Andy as an example, like, you know, I'm familiar with Melanie's manufacturer, you know, they, 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 they supply for lots of, you know, for lots of different partners, but the 
kind the kind of product that they're making for the, the other partners looks nothing like the Andy, you know, lo looks nothing like the product for Andy. Um, and so, like, you're taking all those raw capabilities of, pro you know, of good good product construction, uh, low cost on the, you know, on the manufacturing side, all that scale. And, you know, and you're funneling it to the needs of the specific audience in the specific channel. That is cool. What's new is their interest in working with brands like Andy because they've seen this explosion of e-com. And whereas in the past they may have said, oh, your scale is not interesting. You know, you're not one of these massive department stores. What they have realized is that the world is shifting and actually striking deals with companies like Andy can be very beneficial. And Andy has grown tremendously year over year. I mean, I think it has knocked their socks off and they are so happy that they signed this deal, you know, four <laughs> years ago um, when we were just a tiny little thing. Uh, Melly, how crazy was it going into these, let's call it the manufacturer deal. And you're like, Hey, I've oh never sold God. a bathing suit before. Yeah. I bet this is your first company you ran, right? Oh yeah. Okay. First time um, CEO, all that. <laughs> and they're like, you're like, and believe in me, like how did, how did that Imposter go? syndrome is real. I can say that. I <laughs> make just it, make not, it oh my God. I go, I mean, and I actually went with Jesse to some of these meetings because he was introducing me to some of these major manufacturing players. Um, and we'd go in together. I think he was kind of cool as a cucumber, like he always is. God, and Jesse just figured. I, I was like, oh my, the, how are they going to take me seriously? But you know, like, they, they did. They do. You have conviction Amazing. in your idea and in your product or what, you know, conviction in whatever it is you want to do. And, right. and that's what you put on the table. Someone's going to pick it up. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash yang to learn more. You get feedback from your from your customers in real time. Yep. You've got a manufacturer that has the scale and ideally distribution and ability to pretty much create anything. Yep. And they're doing it. They're now doing it at a smaller scale because they're following the market. 
How are you finding your customers? We use um, Facebook and Instagram, both paid and organically. So organic would be you go to Instagram.com slash Andy Swim and you see our stuff. We also run ads. Um, and and we use a little bit of Snapchat, a little bit of TikTok. Uh, we're on Pinterest. Um, we're, we're sort of like following the, the what I would call the sort of cutting edge of digital marketing. So always next to find that, you know, the, the channel where people are going to and then and then it's really about the creative. Uh, I mean, for you know, swim is a visual thing. You want to see what a swimsuit looks like. Um, probably quite different from contact lenses in that regard. So oh, you can't really I, see I, a lens. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, we run all sorts of goofies. I mean, we run um, contact lenses in a bowl of, of milk. Um, we run, um, you know, screwdriver <laughs> going into contact lenses. Um, it, you know, it's one of the things that's really interesting about it. As Melanie said, it's, it's you know, it's across a few platforms, but this kind of direct response, top of funnel traffic, which is, uh, you know, old traditional ad, traditional advertisers always like to seg, you know, um, segment between their brand spend and their, you know, and, and their bottom of funnel spend. And when your marketing budget was just search and TV, that kind of makes sense because you're running brand stuff on TV and you're running, um, you know, then you're buying your keywords on search, you know, but targeted paid, you know, pay, uh, digital, you know, digital media kind of serves both, both roles. You're getting that, um, you know, you're, you're getting that very measurable return on the ad dollars, but you're also getting that branded impression with the consumer. So when you say top of the funnel, bottom funnel, just for listeners who may sure. not follow, top of the funnel is like, but like market, like your brand. The Budweiser frogs. We make it, yeah, yeah, we make it normal. And then bottom of the funnel is like getting people like you drink beer in this city, you wear bathing suits because you live in New Zealand or and you're on the beach or whatever. And that's the hyper laser focus. Am I getting that right? I mean, for us, you know, top funnel is something very lifestyle-y. Like here are beautiful, you know, bathing suits on a beach in New Zealand. Ooh, this is Andy. Bottom funnel is something that's designed to convert the person. Like here is the swimsuit. This is the cost. This, these are the specs. Like it's way more conversion oriented rather than like the Budweiser frogs, which are more just like brand, brand awareness. And it's interesting because then you talk to like, um, you know, whatever, you talk to the e-com manager for like, a, you know, a CPG brand, like, a, you know, Procter & Gamble or Colgate or something like that. They don't accept sort of the dual purpose that the, you know, that that the branded digital spend is serving. So they'll say like, oh, you know, my, you know, the, the, generally their budget's mostly just going to be search, um, and, you know, and a lot of branded search. So like, you know, if I'm the brand manager um, for Colgate, I'll buy, you know, Col you know, Colgate toothpaste as a search term or whatever. Um, or, you know, or tied or whatever it is. Um, and then they say like, oh, you know, my return on, you know, my return on digital ads is so much higher than yours. But like that, you know, that's being supported by a multi-billion dollar, uh, you know, mm, offline, offline media. Exactly. So this is actually kind of the crux of this. I think so many things have changed. Like when I, I grew up, and I guess I haven't ruled out this dream. When I grew up, I was wanted to be... Um, I wanted to create commercials. I thought that was just a fun way to do it. And back in the day, like that was like everything for a company or a brand or an idea where it's like, if you get the um, the Budweiser frogs wrong, you know, you screw that up. Or I was watching the Tiger documentary on HBO, which is mind blowing, um, but they made an awesome, incredible Nike, like, hello world, I'm Tiger Woods. Maybe you're ready oh, yeah, for yeah. me, but I'm not, I, maybe I'm not ready for it, but are you ready for me? Like mm. this tie is like, racially charged and in like a really positive way. It was so awesome. Um, but if you get that wrong, you know, that's why Nikes were make, making so much money in there, putting so much money out. If you get that wrong, 
that was kind of it. Like you didn't have the opportunity to hit the bottom of the funnel and convert at a higher rate, right? Um, but now Jesse's talking about putting contact lenses in a, in a bowl of milk <laughs> just to see if people like it. Like I'm sure you guys are able to A, B, C, D, E, F, like iterate over and over. And if you flop, it costs what? hundred bucks, 10 bucks, whatever it is, right? And, that kind of thing. And if it flops, it's not that visible. It, it's no one sees it, yeah. Just actually, by definition, no one saw it um, because it didn't work, right? Um, so uh, Melanie, have you, how have you guys, it's, it's almost like you're building your brand from the bottom up, right? Um, like how have you guys tried that? Have there been things you tried that sucked and like you just never talk about? Like what, what like oh, how is that? Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the other thing about direct response marketing is, you know, we get feedback from customers on what kind of swimsuits they want to see from us, but we also get that feedback from the ads that we run. And let's say we do... Um, we had like a pink striped suit, you know, a couple seasons ago and we'd made it and we ran it on, we ran ads for it on Instagram and Facebook and the conversion rate on those ads was miserable. And so what we found is that, um, women, it, like, even though some amount of women that we had heard from directly wanted something like this, it wasn't, wasn't resonating. And so we cut our buy and we didn't buy any more of it. And, um, and that was it. So a lot of product decisions are being made kind of from the marketing channel, which I think is also new. I'm sure in the past, you know, you'd, you'd put in a big PO, you'd invest in whatever the product is, and then like the marketing team just has to sell it. You know, like you're, the brand is committed to it. They have to sell it. And yeah, we're able to we be a lot these, more nimble. We committed, we're in like, we're in pink stripe bathing suits, like make them work. <laughs> yeah. And now, now we can be super nimble. You know, you start mm. with a small PO, you, you test something. PO you can, is purchase order? Oh, purchase order. Yeah. Okay. Um, nice. Or you don't even, I mean, frankly, you don't even have to buy the thing to begin with. Like you can just have someone mock up a design, you know, Photoshop it onto a person, put it either on Instagram, Facebook, on your site with like wait list, you know, sign up when we launch it and see if you get enough email addresses to make it worthwhile to even buy the product. To even Melanie actually make and I the product. Um, tested pet costumes together. Uh, wow! About that. What we were going like to do? Halloween dog pet costume. costumes, or just like just all day, all year long for pet your costume. for your for your everyday pet life, uh, <laughs> like hot dogs stuff. Like Did that. they sell? Oh yeah, okay. No, no. I, I would love I would love us to be the uh, the, the lords of, of of pet costumes, but it was not meant to be. You know, I think in the past you would have had to do a big big upfront investment to launch a business like that. We tried it, didn't work. Closed it. On to the next. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses as tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. 
Go to helixsleep.com slash yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. How would Jesse and I got connected? And one of the things we did on the 2020 presidential race was we treated Andrew as much as possible as a e-commerce product, which sounds cold and heartless, but we, we didn't have a big ad budget, right? We actually had no budget. And it was funny because I was I would go to events and a lot of the events we were doing were either there's political reporters there or donors or fundraisers who are like more traditional. Um, and they're like, you guys need to be doing more of X. They'd be like, you need to be doing more roundtable events on certain topics. And we would try those. We'd try to do events. We'd sell tickets on them and no one gave a crap. Like there were so many traditional things where like, uh, yeah, everybody says they want that, but no one wants it. Um, and what they did want was rallies. Those went great. Um, they wanted um, like various donation conversions worked. Some didn't, some didn't, but like a lot of times if we had a progress bar where people like felt like their donation was moving the needle on something they cared, if it was just like, donate for this random politician it was less exciting. Um, so I, I guess my point was that it, it's almost like you end up building this brand almost solely on the voices of the customer, right? Like, is that like you end up with this product that you know is going to sell because it's literally like evolved out of popular demand. And that's what we felt. Do you guys feel that when you, when you do this? You did a much better job at it than I ever have. But yes, uh, that, 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 you know, that, I think that's exactly how it works. Yeah. So we shop cursing was one. It was a fun one. We're like, oh, you know, when Yank curses, like you, you get a lot more clicks. People like it a lot more. So maybe, you know, let's find a balance. <laughs> I think people are just starting to see the power of all this. I mean, you think about something like AMC and I, I, I will always be one course, international film too. I will always be one course away from a film studies major. Um, so, I, you know, so I'm perf- personally rooting hard for movie theaters to recover. But like, you know, this crazy feedback loop of, uh, you know, Twitter latched onto AMC as a name. Um, AMC actually completed a billion dollar financing as a result. And now the odds that AMC is, you know, continues to exist as a go forward, um, you know, going concern is much higher than it was previously. And so like it's, um, you know, I, there's. You know, people always like to talk, and, and, I, and I, get, I came from the investment side, I get it, you know, the, the fundamentals of the situation and the this and that, but, you know, I think you're seeing there's feedback loops here where actually, like, it can make its, you know, um, the digital stuff can sort of make its own reality. It's, it's not just sort of one-way communication of what's going on. So one of my concerns here, there's only a select number of companies, and one of them in particular, Facebook, that you can actually advertise with and do this. And they, um, Facebook as the first mover and realistically that the platform they created is like the first, the, the best mover besides, you know, my, I guess our MySpace and a few others. But once, once, the, once one is built, it's very tough to replace it because it becomes the fabric of society and how we're all connected. But like right now in like political campaigns and causes cannot use Facebook to advertise and they're toast. Like they literally have no other option to get into the internet of marketing, which is where all marketing is right now, essentially. Um, so thoughts on Facebook's role here and, and what that looks like, is that sustainable going forward? Have you looked at, found other effective options to sell your products outside of Facebook? I know you mentioned a bunch, but it doesn't sound like they were a, a key player. Melanie, I'll start with you, but like, what are your thoughts on Facebook's role here? Yeah, I mean, 
you know, where my mind went while you were speaking is the iOS updates. I don't know if that's something that um, you guys have uh, talked about or Jesse's Winston. Explain it. I haven't talked about it on the podcast, like the new like iPhone updates iPhone, Apple is uh, rolling out new uh, iOS 14, a new update to your iPhone. And that'll roll out throughout the course of the year. So it's not going to be like a one and done, bam, immediate thing. But in when you update, when you get that notification to update your phone and then you update it, usually do it overnight, whatever. Um, when you're done updating, there will now be a pop-up that basically will say something along the lines of, um, do you want to opt in to allow you know, brands or companies or advertisers to trace your activities. Um, that is a default right now. So if you're, if you have an iPhone, it's like, but unless you go to settings it's and opt, opt out, out, not opt in. Correct. Right Currently right now you're, you're in it and you have to go find it buried in settings to opt out. The new iOS 14 is going to opt everyone out and you have to click to opt in. Okay. Now, I don't think a lot of people are going to click to opt into that, right? And that is basically going to, or has the potential to really destroy or at least severely mess with the Facebook, you know, business platform um, when you can't trace the customers. I mean, we don't, we don't just like send swimsuit ads into the wild, right? Like we use Facebook to target uh, women, first of all, women, because that's all the product we sell, who are likely to buy a swimsuit. And that is what has kept our customer acquisition costs low. It's what has enabled us to scale as a good business. And if those acquisition costs go up because suddenly we're targeting you, I mean, like you can buy a women's swimsuit if you want, but you're less likely. You said the term likely to buy a swimsuit. That's not simple. That's probably what thousands of data points that Facebook's, right? right I mean, that's together. why I love Facebook. I think the other thing you see happening at the same time is, you know, for a long time, we've kind of had uh, the top of funnel digital spend to ourselves because the branded advertise the traditional branded advertisers have been content to hang out on TV. And I think you're seeing like, you're seeing the, you know, the, you know, both what Apple's doing, um, California rolling out the, C the CCPA last year, you're seeing those things which are shifting, you know, the ability to target ads. And at the same time, you're seeing TV inventory really start to crater to the point where I like I mean like um, Super Bowl weekend. Super Bowl weekend's usually not a big deal for e-commerce advertisers. Like you know, there's periods in the year where your where ad rates spike and you're sort of you know kicked out. You know, it's it's harder to spend efficiently in the auction. And then there's periods where there aren't. This was the first year like Super Bowl weekend was awful. Um, you know, you could you could just feel a lot of you know sort of more traditional brand advertisers who are used to stepping up their marketing spend around the Super Bowl. Um, sort of flex, you know, flex into the Facebook auction. They went, they put their money in digital. Yeah, exactly. They have to because what they've been doing for years is they've just been bidding up that, you know, they've been burying their heads in the sand and bidding up the value of the TV impressions um, and, you know, and, and just not putting much into digital. Um, and, and so you could see these two, you know, honestly, not in ways that are great for me, but like you could see these two things come together, which is if on the one hand, you know, a lot of the targeting capabilities of, you know, Facebook and other platforms are restricted. And on the other hand, um, the offline inventory is finally just melting down to the point that like, you know, that traditional advertisers are forced with their noses held to spend more on digital. Um, you know, that, that these things just, you know, become um, sort of traditional brand marketing platforms, which, you know, has has all the privacy benefits that, you know, that, that you, you know, that you'd imagine, but also, ha but have the, you know, the downside of like less relevant ad impressions for consumers. So, you know, you just start seeing tight ads the way that TV's 
offline inventory, I'm, I'm assuming is cable TV ads or broadcast the TV biggest, ads yeah. or billboards, that sort of thing. And not, so online inventory would be what we're talking about, um, like Facebook, Google, that sort of thing. So on one hand, Facebook existence is very, very good for smaller companies like you. Yes. And I think as a consumer, the smaller companies are amazing because I know the brand, I feel the brand. Like I've, we've used brands, um, there's one called Outer Known that's actually like a sponsor here for our podcast that we love. Like there's a bunch. I, I, I love these brands. Um, there's a, a company called Grayson I love. I think they make great mm-hmm. pullovers and they, they're like, they were an e-commerce company. And like mm-hmm. when like when you, I could, you could actually, to your point, do the surveys and tell them like, hey, these pants are awesome. But they like stretch a little bit funny. Yeah. And the next round of pants, like we're better. And I'm like, sweet. Um, so this is a good thing, right? And as people yes. like you starting companies, creating jobs, incredible. Yes, we created a lot of jobs in COVID. I'm sure e-com companies created way more than sort of wholesale historic businesses. We were hire- We were on a hiring spree. <laughs> yes. So Facebook enables that, right? Um, at the same time, the more of these little companies that sprout up, Facebook's monopoly gets bigger, which is probably a net negative. So like what? <laughs> I mean, what are your thoughts on that? It's like so it's like- <laughs> I know, think that's the big push and pull. And I think you're seeing it in e- like- it's clear on the ad side. I think that the the one that's that people will start paying attention to is the payment side as well, because everybody, you know, every people get how Facebook and Google and you know to a lesser extent Amazon make money. Um, what, the the thing that people miss is if you're not those three companies and your business and your pitch to investors is that you're making money around e-commerce, it's on payment. So whether that's Shopify or Stripe or um, PayPal or Square or whoever it is, all these players are are, are saying that they're going to make money on payments. Like big investors aren't looking at Andy and saying, this is my go-to. They're looking at a payment company that's helping the Andes and the Hubbles of the world make money. Is that what you're saying? You can either be an ad platform for brands or you can be a capital provider for brands. And like most people, you know, and, and most of the entities in the, you know, 50 billion plus, um, you know, weight class um, in this space are, are one or the other. Um, uh, and the payment side gets, you know, if you like, what does payments really mean? Payments really means like lending. Um, you know, you're, you're integrating, you're providing a credit card processor. The way you really make money off of that is you're getting a you're getting a small businesses or you know an independent brands, um, you know, uh, transaction data, and then you're extending them loans. Um, so like this whole push pull of like supporting the little guy but also supporting the giant, you know, it's wild. Could you imagine more extreme dynamic of this? You have. Um, <laughs> On, on the one hand, this is literally, you know, this is literally the most efficient system ever created to extend, you know, small loans and working capital to mom and pop businesses, whether they're digital or offline or, or both. Um, and so it, it's great. And, you, you know, you literally couldn't, re- you know, replicate it. On the other hand, you just have these behemoths that have access to, you know, negative cost of capital money that are allowed to just, you know, f- you know, uh, shove it down everyone's throat all day. Um, so, you know, so, yes, I think these these exact kind of, you know, put push and pull of, of the, you know, the platform and everyone else. Um, that's exactly the, that's exactly the awkward tension. I feel like it's, Amelia, I'm so curious your thoughts. I just feel like it's a good thing until Facebook and Apple get in a turf war and then who's <laughs> going to pay the price? Andy, I think, right? Like, what, what do you think? I mean, it's funny because the, you know, we're talking about the future, like this, the theme here is the future of buying the future or the future of shopping. And, and, I mean, it, it, well, first of all, it's just so opaque. But second of all, like, I think in a lot of ways, there's going to be 
a reversion, I mean, maybe this is an unpopular opinion, but a reversion back to at least some something that what, you know, I, I feel basically where I come out on all of this is that I feel very thankful that Andy started when it did. I think it's becoming a lot harder to start a small business these days for all the reasons we've just described. Um, and that's unfortunate. I think it should be going the other way. We should you know, there should be more small businesses because like you said, they're great. I love supporting small businesses. I love that they pay attention to me. I love the value, like everything we've talked about. Um, but I think it's really hard today. Um, I mean, in some ways, the barrier to entry is lower than ever. Uh, there is capital going around. You can, I mean, I feel like I can email every day with people asking to give Andy money. Great. But like, you have to spend it efficiently. You have to build a good business, you know, and I think that that's the part that's becoming, it's just tricky. I'm curious of what like policy solutions are. And the one I was thinking was like, look, what we did in the the tr big trust breakups or the big monopoly breakups where it's your, your trains and your Rockefellers, your Vanderbilts, where they are they're owning things that be eventually become a form of a public good um, where everybody needs a train and whoever took all the risk on to build that is just going to own it and they can, they can abuse that power. So... They get rich because it takes a lot of heart and strength and expertise and risk and all that stuff to, you know, you, you create, you still, you have your rich families and people and employees that, that took that risk on. But eventually you start to have to distribute the gains because you're hurting people. And I wonder if Facebook ends up having the same thing where they own all the data. As of now, there's no platform where others are going to be sharing that much data uh, at the same point. There's probably, you know, Google's one and Apple's one, and the, but eventually the government has to say, look, we need to start brokering this information out for the mom and pops of the world. You can still get a cup, but you will not be printing money hand over fist like you used to because the people here now are now a generation removed. So they didn't take the risk. They don't deserve it. Um, you're just, you're, you're, you built the note around your business and it's time for the government to kind of just, you know, I don't, I don't like the level the playing field thing, but the generally make this, Keep the good and not um, and not make yeah, it exploitative. I, I don't know what you guys think of that. I, I mean, it's t look. I look. I, I, selfishly, I you know, I, I love anything that you know that supports the, the little guy against the platforms. Like you know, tr you know, trying to wear my outside hat. I think like I always have a lot of trouble arguing against things that are good for the consumer. And so, if you think like broadly, like what is the net impact of these large internet platforms? Um, they you know they create they create conditions of perfect information and perfect comp competition and infinite substitution. And, uh, you know, first, you know, you know, microeconomics 101, when those are the conditions of, a, you know, of the market you're in, your, your, you know, your profits are going to be zero. Um, and, so, you know, so, so I have trouble, you know, I proposals that kind of, you know, try to step in and, you know, and hurt the consumer by relaxing those constraints, uh, you know, I have trouble with, I do think, and it, you know, it, it and look, I mean, we're playing it out slowly over time. I think it's funny, what, you know, when you have these like big antitrust conversations, it's like, okay, 20 years ago or whatever, Facebook didn't exist 20 years ago, but 20 years ago, everybody loved Google and Google was good. Now Google's evil. Same freaking people. Um, and so like, I think it's totally reasonable to say like 20 years ago, this was an infant industry. We put a bunch of rules in place to support it as an infant industry. Now it's a cash cow. What do you do as a society? You milk your cash cows. And so I think there's like a, you know, there's a more gradual sort of renegotiating the deal. Um, and I think it could happen in a less broad way because I don't like think about how awful COVID would have, you know, it it feels like, oh, you know, not much harm to, you know, hurt these big players. But like 
if you know if Amazon were meaningfully incapacitated, if some you know some of the media platforms were media incapacitated, like this whole lockdown would not have been possible um, to the extent that we you know managed it at all. And so, so, I, so I think it's I think it's tougher because you have you have to do it gradually because it's it's all based on um, trying to figure out what level of you know what level of, of of profits and revenue these businesses really need to continue to operate you know to to, to operate at sort of peak level. Um, and so, you know, they should, you, you know, whatever it's like any, it's like any negotiation, you gradually hack away at that. And yeah, and I, and the government hasn't, does not have a good track record of doing the things I just mentioned. So it was you know, like, uh, in terms of trying to get in there and help distribute the gains here. Yeah. But each year you chip away a little bit more. And I, and I think, you know, the thing that's unfortunate is a lot of the time that you chip away and you chip away in the game, you know, and, and the things you chip away, go, you know, go to a, you know, go to a relatively insulated group around the government. Um, that, you know, that, you know, that gets it in the form of new, you know, new rents, expensive regulations to manage. And it would be a lot nicer if we figured out this time, um, you know, how to take those, you know, those excess profits and, you know, get them in actual constituents' hands. Your, your point that this stuff that they are, and we've kind of talked about, it, they are really helping consumers and small businesses, like objectively, not the, not a talking PR point, like very real. Um, Mel, I don't know what you think, Melanie, if it was like a way... Is there, is there, in your mind, is there something, uh, whether it's regulation or a rule or something where um, a government influence um, that could help, like this impending whatever it is turf war between these companies that would hurt you? What do you think? I, I mean, I, I really don't. I, I'm su- basically I've I've been wa- like I'm super interested in this and um, feeling very engaged in the conversation. Feeling like oh my god, this is something I should really pay attention to because it will seriously impact me and my business, um, and that I'm woefully underqualified to weigh in on. Um, so my answer is that I I don't know, but I would want to get into that. No, I mean look, you're and you're trying to. Just- keep your company afloat too right like to pick your head exactly. up andrew talks about this all the time even on facebook like facebook's just trying to make that company work and this stuff's hard and it's complicated we've had very smart people on this podcast um talking about what to do here and even the best experts in the world disagree for e-commerce in general for human beings buying products what does the future look like on the consumer end let's assume things kind of stay as is or we continue on the, the relative path we're on is it I'm assuming that the data just gets better and better and the technology accessibility gets better and better. At some point I can buy whatever I want. I know exactly what it is instantly. And you as the company know exactly where I am as the fulfiller of that transaction. Like, where do you see the, where do you see this going from the consumer standpoint? Like how is Andy selling more bathing suits 20 years from now? (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's something I spend a lot of time thinking about. This is not the most innovative answer, and so I feel badly about that given the topic of the podcast. But, you know, when I think about how to keep doing that, you know, we talked a little bit about channel expansion, but there's there's a whole wide world out there. And uh, we're just in the United States and Australia, of course, because counter-seasonal. But, you know, around these conversations around Facebook and iOS and what's happening, um, you know, I've been meeting a lot with my marketing team, and one of our solutions is like, Let's start selling in the EU. Let's start selling in Asia. Let's see what it would take to enter the Chinese market. Um, because you need to diversify uh, in order to, well, in or- as a baseline, you need to diversify. And if you want to get to, you know, selling 200 million swimsuits or whatever number in the next few years, um, you know, the, I mean, the U.S. is a huge country with a, a huge market. Um, 
but as these things are are happening and all, all these changes are happening, it's it's you start to cast your eye, you know, across the pond and and see what you can do over there too. Too not 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 in replace of, but no, of course, know, also. And you have and there's Facebook in those markets, but there's also Tencent. And there's WeChat. I mean, this. I mean, look, we talked to a lot of um, individuals in the Asian American community on WeChat here, and they were U.S. citizens. Um, they yeah. use that for everything in China. Um, I mean, talk about knowing what you're doing with your, like, talk about knowing who your your customer is. And WeChat knows a lot about, or yeah, they know a lot about you. Um, but yeah, and maybe yeah. that's a good way to put it. Is like the more this becomes more global, the competition heats up, right? Where it's not just Facebook as the only player. Um, it's probably the U.S. and China butting heads. But you know, these um, other markets using different platforms. Um, different data, different way to target people. I'm hoping that the next 20 years of commerce are a little more boring than the last 20 years. And that like <laughs> in a lot of ways it start, you know, this whole, and maybe this will just be continue to be the paradigm, but you know, the paradigm of like venture is like, you know, information technology investing. Um, and like, you know, think if you were sitting around in Detroit and you had venture as the, you know, you know, automotive investing and like, you know, it would look really good in 1890, 1900, 1910, 1920. And then, like, you'd hit your 1935 vintage, and uh, Ford and GM were created already, um, and it would look real rough from there. Uh, like, this this is start, you know, which doesn't mean, like, e-commerce will, you know, whatever, e-commerce will probably continue to gain share. That story is not necessarily played out, but a lot of this starts to feel like a more mature industry in that you have, um, you know, and look, I think this is a lot of the antitrust tension um, consumers feeling less product improvement in the services that they're using and that those are more mature products. Um, the, the companies involved in those businesses, you know, trying to maximize profit over, you know, over revenue growth because, you know, they're not quite as much in that like hype, you know, hyper growth mode anymore. Um, and, and I think um, I mean, I, I think there's a lot that's goofy about, you know, something like uh, Bitcoin soaring up above 40 and, you know, Tesla, an 800 billion dollar company. But I think like, you know, what um, I think one of the things in there is like people trying to, you know, people hoping that like, um, you know, it, it, it rotates what what industry is sort of, um, you know, in the focus. And if you went back 15 or 20 years ago, everybody was excited about bricks and emerging markets. And then the last 10 years have been, um, you know, digital. And, you know, and in the 90s, it was big box and, you know, and, and Walmart. And, um, you know, it, like every, you know, an industry just doesn't get an infinite day in the sun. And I, I think it'd be, um, I, I think there's been a lot of gains from sort of, you know, better information management. Um, but it, you know, it'd be, I, but I, for one would be excited to see, you know, the next, de you know, uh, you know, something, you know, energy be the, you know, be the really exciting thing in the next decade. Life sciences be the really exciting thing in the next decade that like, um, you know, that, that like um, continued improvement in how we buy a bundle of goods that on, you know, that hasn't terribly changed very much year to year for like <laughs> decades now um, isn't the, you know, it isn't like the great marvel of our time. <laughs> that. <laughs> that is a good way to kind of wrap this where it's uh, let's hope for all of us that the innovations are not coming in e-commerce because I think we can all agree it's, pretty we, good. it's very easy to buy products now. We got that. We're, we're, we're not, it's yeah. not perfect, but it's damn good. And <laughs> there are a lot of things that are nowhere near perfect and nowhere near damn good. Let's call it um, biotech and like automotives or you got a list. A lot of things that make society and the planet a lot better than optimizing how fast we buy swimsuits no offense to <laughs> how awesome andy is and how great the swimsuit is um i can't vouch from personal experience but um my sister has said she loves your products so great. um she's probably your target demo i think she's 20 she's in her mid-20s so 
Perfect. 26, I believe. Anyway, um, she's going to kill me. She's listening to this. Video. You don't know how old I am? She's 26, okay? Relax. Um, <laughs> coming up on our upcoming birthday. Anyway, guys, um, I am just so grateful for your time. Um, I know you're both literally running. People are relying on, on you to, to lead their company. So for you to take an hour uh, to listen and, 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 and teach me and hopefully our audience, thank you, thank you. Um, best of luck um on everything you're doing and uh i'm gonna what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna check back with both of you in 10 years exactly and see um how well this did the test of time if that works for you i think that's perfect <laughs> all right cool